Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Though we had to postpone our first Savannah Symposium, the cultural intellectual festival we had planned for this week on account of COVID-19, we thought we'd take the opportunity to connect with some of the symposium speakers from a distance. Today's guest is one of those, the psychiatrist, philosopher, and literary scholar, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. Though recorded some months apart, today's discussion is very much the sequel to my first conversation with Ian McGilchrist, which was recorded last November on the Isle of Skye, and which is the previous episode of this podcast. I was very pleased to have a chance to delve further into the topics of that first conversation. McGilchrist is a deep thinker, and his work illuminates convergences and continuities across different domains and disciplines, from philosophy to neuroscience, to medicine, to music, to psychology, to literature, to theology, and so on. This conversation has all of those, but follows a single all-important thread, and that is how things become or unfold into what they can be, which you might say is the question at the heart of everything, from the littlest flower to the whole cosmos, and most especially the question of our own selves, our human nature, freedom, purpose. Within the trajectory of that topic, we discuss relationality and reason, teleology and consciousness, as well as the need for, and the current state of, the humanities, which are the domain of these very questions. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Dr. McGilchrist, the last time we spoke, we were in your beautiful study off the majestic Talisker Bay. How are you doing, and how are things on the Isle of Skye? Oh, thanks, Stephen. Well, I'm personally well, um, and I think that most of my friends and family are, although some of them may well turn out to have had the bug. They've had a rather nasty flu, but seem to be okay. Um, Life up here is very unchanged. (laughs) Um, My preferred mode of operation is a form of self-isolation. So, needing anything else. What are your particular reflections in this extraordinary and extraordinarily tumultuous moment in our shared history? I mean, this is really a global event. What thoughts has it precipitated in in your mind in the last few weeks? Well, I suppose the same sort of thoughts have come to me that must have come to many people, that uh, it's rare that there isn't a, a positive side to even things that look very damaging, as indeed I often reflect that there are damaging sides to things that we embrace um, naively as entirely positive. So uh, I'm a great believer in the coincidence of opposites. In this particular case, I think a lot of things immediately stand out. One is um, a more communitarian spirit, I think, which it's not that it's sort of been invented or or, um, something of that kind, but that it was there all along. And actually people miss the opportunity, I suspect, to to express it. 
part of the so-called meaning crisis has occurred to me maybe that actually people find that the sorts of things that do give meaning to life are not the obvious things that our civilization embraces. They're a close face-to-face togetherness with people. And in these times, of course, you can't get face-to-face with some people, but with others, you almost have to be quite close. And to do things for other people, for example, we all know of many, many cases where people have looked out for vulnerable, elderly, isolated people in the community and offered to do shopping for them and to uh, cook for them and so forth. So that aspect of things has improved. An enormous improvement has taken place in uh, what I'm afraid one these days calls the environment, but I prefer to call the natural world. We're not killing it quite so fast. Apparently, one can see from space that the pollution over China and over Italy um, is very much less than it normally is. And we've all heard stories of how uh, fish have returned to the canals in Venice, which haven't been seen there for 100 years and so forth. So what that impresses on me, rather like the communitarian spirit, is that if we just give it a chance, it's there and ready to go. We haven't lost these things completely, but we're doing our best to exterminate them. Whether when all this is over, we will be able to remember that and carry it forward, I don't know. I'm rather doubtful, partly because I know how quickly one forgets. For example, not this winter just passed, but last winter, the one before, we had no water in the house for 14 days. Uh, that's because the water comes from, uh, from the hillside. And as it turned out, after investigating a lot of piping that took two weeks, a creature had got into the pipe and died there. And for two weeks, I thought, gosh, you know, getting water out of the river and having to boil it up on the stove and every time you want to do anything really and such a such a business how wonderful just to be able to turn on a tap and for a few days after it came back I really was in awe of the fact that you could just go to a place in the room and turn (laughs) turn a tap and there would be water delivered to you and you can even do another one and it would come out already heated extraordinary but of course you know after a week or so I got completely used to to this and uh, forgot about it. It's rather like a very painful condition that you 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 feel you you know you, you'll be lucky to survive it, and later you can't remember what that pain was like. So I think that for that reason and for the other main reason, which is that our civilization is predicated on greed and a sort of frenetic activity in pursuit of greed, I'm afraid that that will inevitably return. Those are some of my thoughts. I'd like to pick up on something you said about about communitarianism. There's clearly a sense in which this virus has exposed a fundamental truth, which as I think it's St. Paul says, you're all members one of another. Those words have come to me in the last weeks as I've thought about what is being revealed by the virus in a negative sense, which is that we can we can get each other sick. Unintentionally, unknowingly, we can pass this along. That, you might say, reveals something of the fact that we're all in this together. But, but there's also a corresponding positive insight, which is that 
our actions, and this is, of course, what the whole social distancing, or as one of my friends says, perhaps a social distancing, um, but the whole social distancing uh, uh, approach to slowing the pandemic is precisely the positive side of what we see negatively in our ability to get each other sick. We see positively in our ability to, in some sense, keep each other healthy. And though this yeah. is just one approach, this is just one moment in history that is is happening to bring this to bear in a particularly vibrant way, it it surely is revealing something of a fundamental truth about our relation to each other. It certainly is. Um, and it relates in my mind to the problem of globalization and localism. In some ways, one of the problems of our age is, you know, I, I believe that we are um, looking at the world according to the way the left hemisphere tends to do, which is that things are isolated fragments and therefore not seeing the whole picture. And so you might think, well, maybe I think globalization is a very good idea. And of course, it has its benefits. It means that if we are in contact with other peoples, other places, we're less likely to see them as alien or, or, or necessarily opposite to, to ourselves. So that is obviously a very good thing. But of course, the downside of it is that it eats up and destroys local uh, businesses, local agriculture, local communities, and replaces them with enormous corporate structures. So there are advantages and disadvantages to globalism, and there are advantages and disadvantages to what one might call localism. The, at the moment, I think we very much need to cultivate thriving local communities which are living in undemanding ways close to the land, producing and selling their produce locally, that in itself would have an enormous impact on pollution uh, of the air and, and the seas and so forth. So it's always a matter of balancing these things. And in relationships too, it's important to be communitarian without being eaten up by a state on the one hand and important to be yourself but not individualistically an atom in a society that is really just an aggregate of little bits so that it's always this um feeling your way between the two extremes and really that is a wrong way to put it if i say that it makes it sound like that all we need to do is find an average or a compromised position halfway but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we need a lot of connectedness and a lot of expression of the individual. And these things are not um, incompatible. The image that always comes to me when talking about this kind of thing is, is from my favorite philosopher, Heraclitus, pre-Socratic philosopher, who I still think was probably the most important philosopher that ever lived. And he says, they do not understand that it is an opposition that is a coming together. He has the image of the string of a bow or the string of a lyre, which takes 
its energy and force from the fact that it is pulled in two opposite directions maximally. Um, that's what gives the power to the bow to let fly the arrow. It's what gives the power to the lyre string to let the notes and melody come forth. And it wouldn't be better if you just said, well, why pull in two opposite directions? Why don't we just economize and let the thing go flabby? Well, that's, that is, if I may say it like that, that is what I'm suggesting is the wrong way of interpreting what I'm saying. So in a good relationship, a couple are, in a way, maximally together at the same time that they maximally fulfill one another's individuality. The, it, there shouldn't be a collapse into fusion on the one hand, and there shouldn't be a sort of flying apart on the other. So you always need this combination. And it's not just about an average. You can actually be maximally connected at the same point that you are maximally fulfilling one another's individuality. I hope that makes some sense. Certainly it does. You know, I don't think anyone would deny that there are different levels at which we are related. Of course, there's the highest or let's say the most abstract or uh, distant level. There's the global and then one moves down to the, 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 the state and then the, the province or county and the city and the neighborhood and then the family and, and one's most intimate relations. And all of those, you might say, have to be in some harmony with each other. It's a mistake to think that one should everything exists only in the global and one can subordinate the individual to that. In fact, I would say quite the opposite, that all of the other relations have to be subordinated to what maximizes the flourishing of the individual, but the individual is precisely revealed in its fullness in relation to others. So that returns my thinking to something we spoke about last time, which is about the metaphor of, of unfolding. And it seems to be related to this beautiful metaphor you've given us from, of the, the taut string that, is, that sings because of the tension that it, it, uh, it exists within. And so I wanted to ask you, Ian, about your metaphor of unfolding and what unfolding is for, uh, let's say, for an individual. How do you understand that? What does it mean? Well, it's a, a good question. It has something to do with the relationship between potential and actuality. And it has something to do with the explicit and the implicit. The words explicit and implicit come from the Latin plicari to fold. So something that is implicit is folded in so that you don't see it. Something that is explicit is folded out so that you do see it. But things have special qualities when they're implicit that they lose when they become explicit. Or they can have qualities that are not fulfilled potentially, but that can be fulfilled by an unfolding into whatever is actual. I sense that the business of the cosmos is to do with, on the one hand, an unfolding of potential. I think that's a very, to me, a very reasonable answer to the question, why is there anything at all? The only way in which I can make sense of it is that there is a something that is an infinite potential. But just because it is an infinite potential requires some kind of limitation in order to discover what 
that potential can cash out into, if you see what I mean, in, in actuality. And the business of the cosmos is the cashing out of this infinite potential in necessarily more constricted actualities. But it's not diminished by that. It's somehow more fulfilled and expressed through it, rather as the potential of a person, as we were saying, is fulfilled through relationships, which seem like taking the focus away from the individuality of that person. But in fact, the individuality of that person can only be found in this unfolding which actualizes potential with others. Yes. Yes. No, I'd like to. I'd like to stay with this for a, a few minutes, and yeah. as it were, unfolded as best that we can. Yeah. The the unfolding of of potentiality into actuality is not simply a random thing. We spoke last time a bit about how different things have different potentialities within them. Uh, the acorn can become an oak, for example. So, the unfolding at some level has to do with what is inherently naturally implicit or potential in us. And the unfolding cannot become more than that, you might say, that potential is. There are, there are limits on what we are and how we can unfold. And yet at the same time, the unfolding of life seems a profoundly free activity. It's not predetermined. You don't know just how uh, your life or love will unfold or how scientific discoveries will be made or what form an artistic creation or music may take. And yet, whilst it unfolds, it seems to unfold according to the logic of its inner necessity. And so I know this is very abstract language, but I, was, I want to ask you about the relation between the freedom of unfolding and also its, its intrinsic or inner necessity. Uh, wonderful. Um, all very important stuff. Uh, I've been writing a chapter towards the end of my book on purpose, which I think is relevant to what you're talking about. There's a tendency for us to fall into two opposite positions, neither of which is at all satisfactory. One is that if there's a purpose, it's somehow all laid out in advance. Bergson, writing in 1910, had a contemporary image for him of the unfolding of a lady's fan. He said, you know, the cosmos is not like the way in which a fan is unfurled. It was painted that way all along, and it's just a question of whether it's unfurled or, or closed. Um, it's that something actually is being created, and this image of creation and evolution were very central to him. Now, it's paradoxical that Darwin, whose name is most associated with evolution, that wonderful concept, both his concept of it narrowly in biology and the overall concept of it in the cosmos, uh, that his name has been annexed to a very, in my view, constrained reductionist way of talking, um, namely some of the neo-Darwinists who really don't, aren't true to the spirit of Darwin himself who was much more open to the idea of a teleology. In fact, he said that uh, Asa Gray, the, the great American botanist who, who wrote an appreciation of his work for, for nature, uh, yes, nature was being published in 1860 or whenever it was, and he said, you know, that what Darwin has done is bring together for us 
um, the idea of teleology with morphology. So not just about forms being given, but actually having a purpose and unfolding in a certain way. Now, the difficulty is that many people now assume that if there's a purpose, this means it's engineered. We have the image of the tinkering god, the, the, the sort of engineer on sabbatical leave, as I think he was called um, by Panikar. And this is a hopeless idea that both is wrong about purpose and deeply wrong about any idea that could be entertained, certainly by me, of a divinity. Not a micro-controlling engineer but an infinite source of potential that is the ground of being without actually, it would take away from the whole purpose of the thing if it were all already known, then there wouldn't have needed to be a cosmos. If it was already known, then why put yourself through the business of creation? It's only because creation must be new that it has value. And I see this imaged in many of the mythologies, cosmologies of many of the ancient religions. And if you go back to Genesis, when God created, according to the Bible, on each day, except for one day, actually, interestingly, but on all the other days, it says he saw and saw that it was good. Now, if he had known in advance what it was going to be, it wouldn't have needed to be stated repeatedly that he saw it and saw that it was good because it was somehow new. It was truly free. Now, the whole point of creation from God's point of view, it seems to me, if there is a God, is to have an other to relate to. And there isn't another if that other is just a controlled expression of you. It's just like an artificial limb of yours. It's not like having a partner with whom you can have a relationship. So again, to return to the relationship of a fulfilling, loving relationship between two people, which is a good model, I think, for relationships in general, that it is not a controlling thing. It is a genuinely risky element in which we don't know everything, but we know in a way where it where it's going, if it's going well. It, it won't be entirely unpredictable. The person that you love, God willing, will not suddenly one day turn into somebody entirely different and uh, with, with, with unforeseen, entirely unforeseen consequences. So things are open, but they're not sort of entirely random. And one way of looking at this is that at the local level, everything is uncertain. Indeed, physics gives us that model that at the most minute level, the ultramicroscopic level, nothing is actually certain or determined. But overall, there are shapes that keep recurring. And I think now it is accepted that evolution can't just work on an entirely random basis, which again is not to say that it's being micromanaged by some divine power, but that it has a general thrust in a certain direction that it will take. An image one might use to make sense of this is the rain falling on a landscape of rivers, valleys, and mountains. It will fall at random wherever it falls, but where it goes as it negotiates the landscape is not entirely random. It will go more into certain gullies and down into rivers and finally towards the sea. So 
it is perfectly possible at many levels and in many ways to bring together the idea of a direction, a purpose, a drive, without it being in any way um, a foregone conclusion exactly what will happen. That's beautifully said, and these are very deep, th- very deep thoughts, of course. The idea of unfolding in relation to otherness, in our last interview, you made the comment that, I think it was, that relation is prior to the things related, as though there's yes. the relation itself is a more fundamental reality than, you might say, a forensic analysis of the this or the that. And yes. in some sense, we see this in the most vibrant way in our own in our own lives by encountering other people in love in economics in forgiveness in humor in 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 the whole rich panoply of of human life we know that our own inner nature is more fully actualized in those relations than it could ever be if we were to be inert atoms that never had those relations. You might say that our our essential identity is precisely an activity of relation with others in which we come to find what we are internally in those external relations. We only come to find out who we are in those relationships, which is one of the reasons why the relationships need to be before the things related, because the things related only become what they are in the relationships. So it's actually illogical to suppose that there are the things before their relationships. The only way that you can make sense of that is to conceive of the world, and I'm afraid for us in the West nowadays, this is almost a reflex to do so, of pre-existing entities that then work out how to relate. But actually, we only emerge from I mean, whatever it is that we think we see, including ourselves, only becomes what it is in the unfolding of the relationships. If people find it too hard to accept it that way, I would agree that it is a sort of um, reverberative process in which perhaps it would be arguable that neither needs to be preceding the other. The image that I rather like at the moment is that of um, Indra's net, which is an Indian Hindu a, a Vedic image of a net that covers the cosmos, and it is just that a network. But at each intersection that makes it a net, there is a little jewel which reflects all the rest of the net and all the other jewels. So, that going back to your earlier comment, that holes are within holes, and that it's a sort of nested, what uh, I think. Um, Arthur Kirster called a holarchy, in which, um, depending on the place in which you look, this looks like a part in relation to a hole bigger than it, but that hole looks like a part in relation to a hole that is greater than it, and so forth. So these holes and parts relate in that way. But the thing is the relation, because you can't actually see any part of this hologram without knowing about and taking into account the others. I was very delighted to come across a a, a physicist called David Merman literally saying that relationship comes before what is related in terms of his view of quantum physics. Yes, I had the pleasure of interviewing the great Freeman Dyson before he died. And in fact, I have right in front of me, as it happens, 
a few words from Dyson that are quite related to this. He writes that mind is inherent in every electron and the processes of human consciousness differ only in degree, but not in kind from the processes of choice between quantum states, which we call chance when they are made by electrons. The, The simple fact of the matter, I think, Ian, is that unless one can develop intellectual resources to account for these relational realities, we're not accounting for anything at all because the world does not exist in an inert state. And the principles that we might use to relate, to describe these relations are not themselves inert. You might say any principle that could be worth its salt as an explanatory principle would itself have to be an account of an activity in movement or in in a dynamic operation. And so, you know, what Dyson is referring to, and your friend, the other physicist, when one looks at the level of the electron or what one sees, as you were describing in terms of morphology, Aristotle is, of course, very good on these very questions. When one takes that and looks at it at the level of the principle, one's end up ends up speaking about, in the way that you were, for example, about God and creation. To speak about God and creation is, in a sense, just to speak about how the infinity of life or the infinity of the principle can only be shown in what is other than it, in giving rise to what is other than it, in knowing itself in what is other. Without the intellectual resources to describe the activity of the relation itself, one is unable to account for any of the most basic realities of life, from nature to love to forgiveness to community and so forth. Am I, am I going too far here? No, I, I don't think so at all. Uh, actually, that, that uh, quotation from uh, Freeman Dyson, uh, uh, I actually included in this book I've written, because one of the things that I had to face was the question of the relationship between matter and consciousness. Some people will rejoice and others will switch off in in rage when I say that I conclude that consciousness is a primary element. It, it is one of the ontological primitives, if you like. It is one of the things behind which you cannot go in the cosmos. And that matter is a form of consciousness that it takes at uh, certain points in certain places. Uh, It would take too long to explain it, but but essentially that they're not separate from one another. Um, And certainly not, I don't mean by that, that somehow um, consciousness can be reduced to matter because as Joseph Needham once said, nothing can ever be reduced to anything. If you say that two things um, are made of the same stuff, and uh, one of them seems rather lowly, and the other one seems rather highfalutin, you're elevating the lowly thing as much as you're tearing down the the highfalutin one, if you see what I mean. So consciousness and matter have to share the same sort of um, status in the universe. Uh, The way I think of it is as matter as being of a kind of um, form of consciousness, a, a phase of consciousness. Yes, that's, I think that's brilliantly said. In fact, that's the argument of a, of a brilliant book by Eli Diamond on Aristotle's De Anima. You might say the animating principles of all reality must be the same. No matter what level you're looking at, the same yes. structures are present. And, and indeed, consciousness is not somehow a subsidiary, something you arrive at later, but it is 
the fundamental reality in which everything else is, in some sense, an image or in its own way manifests the same characteristics of. And you know, this at, yeah. at some level is clearly what Aristotle is after. And it's true also, though we won't have time to get into this in depth, but that is what Trinitarian theology is also trying to describe. The self-relation of the principle in what is other than it as the animating principle of all things in their necessity and in their freedom. The good thing about the idea that consciousness is right at the foundation of everything is that it's in line with what all the great wisdom traditions of the world have always said. And it's in line very clearly with what most of the physicists of the last hundred years have said. They've been quite unequivocal about it. So the only people who are out of step here are people who are still subscribing to what is effectively a mid-19th century materialism. Well, it started at the Enlightenment, but then reached its apogee with the sort of hydraulic era of the middle of the 19th century. Um, And they're on the wrong side of history. So... uh, (laughs) On the wrong wrong side of reality, you might say. (laughs) Certainly on the wrong side of reality, that's true. I, yes. Yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, Ian, that, that you know, once one has come to appreciate the reality of, of reality itself and its relational characteristic, huge vistas and horizons open up in the way that we think about things that we might have dismissed under the terrible reign of a kind of reductivist materialism. So, for example, if it is indeed the case that reality is relational, that we are in relation to each other in some fundamental way, that our own inner nature is realized in relation to our relations with others. If that is actually the nature of what is real, then how do I come to acknowledge and live in relation to that that reality most fully, most powerfully, most freely? It might be good to develop habits which recollect your relation to that. Habits whereby, of which the whole point is to remind yourself of what is real. And of course, that yes. is, you know, one can put that in the language of prayer or meditation or encounters with nature. There's any number of ways which you could, you could, you could, you can put that. I'm not trying to put this in relation to one tradition, one particular religious tradition or meditative tradition or another, but what, but suddenly those practices appear as rather the most rational thing one could do to bring oneself in relation to reality rather than a rejection, renunciation of what is rational and real. I, I wouldn't disagree with you for a moment on that. I completely agree. And what, what you're saying is what Pascal said, that if you desire a certain cast of mind, then to adopt the habits of a person who has that cast of mind. And in fact, unless you do that, you don't understand the reality of the position because no position on anything that is of importance in this world is a purely abstract intellectual proposition. It involves an action, a disposition, a way of casting one's life in relation to the world. So that is absolutely right. And, uh, you know, at a very simple level, what I love, I don't belong to either of these traditions, but I know enough about them to have seen bits of them in action, is that in the Orthodox, i.e. the Oriental um, Christian tradition of the Greeks and the the Russians, 
and in certain Jewish traditions, there are little prayers that are just very brief, but they accompany simple acts of daily life. The only one we've probably got left is uh, grace before meals. Um, and that's become, well, certainly in most uh, most societies now, um, perhaps not in the American South, which I think maintains some of these things, but uh, it has really disappeared. So the, the idea that... The, the things that we desire to adopt. And if we desire to adopt something good, then putting oneself in the way of that and paying attention to it, listening to it, seems to me very important. You said, how do we, if we think that relationship is very important and we, we, we recognize that things become, and we become more ourselves in relationship, how do we further that? And I think the answer is in... A kind of attention. I mean, you know, I believe attention to be absolutely central to the existence of everything because it's an aspect of consciousness. And if it's true that consciousness is the ground of, of everything, as I believe it to be, then the way in which you dispose that consciousness will govern what it encounters. I mean, in a very simple way, we see that all the time in our, our lives, that the way in which we attend something changes the way in which it manifest to us and therefore how we relate to and react to it. So I think that business of attending to something that is in communication already with you, you are in relation to it. You're not actually developing a relationship. You are in audition. You are opening your ear to what it has to say to you. And I, I was thinking, strangely, it hadn't occurred to me in this way before this conversation, but I hark back to Genesis. But if you go to the beginning of St. John's Gospel, famous words, in the beginning was the word. Um, and that's the Greek logos. I mean, of course, the thing about a word is that it is both an expression of something that needs to become itself only when it is received by something and exists only in the relationship between the speaker of the word and the one who hears the word. Otherwise, the word is nothing. So the word is automatically an expression of something that exists, being received by a responding mind that is not without its already attunement to what is said. And what actually comes into being comes out of these three things coming together. That, of course, is another way of talking about the Trinity. Indeed it is, and very beautifully said, Ian. There are many other things along these lines that we, we might touch on. I'll just very quickly pick up on what you said about gratitude. You mentioned earlier the meaning crisis, and one of the most fundamental facts of meaning is that if we could simply generate it on our own, then there would be no shortage of it because we would just infinitely create more that's just it lies within us simply to make it. Now, of course, we must be involved in the discovery of the meaning that becomes uh, that which becomes meaningful to us that has a relation to our inner nature and our activity. But if it were simply in us to generate, then uh, uh, we would never find ourselves in a lack of it or never be unhappy unha or depressed or whatever. It, it would be fully within our, our own immediacy to rest within those things, but it is not. And what that tells us is that our realization fundamentally depends on that which 
is also beyond us and exists beyond our own creation. And, you know, once one sees that at some level one is the recipient of that which makes one free and happy and full and a, and a meaningful life, then it becomes a very natural or you might say rational thing to, to try to live in relation, some relation of gratitude to precisely that superabundant reality. And whether it's grace before meals or uh, you know, people talk about uh, gratitude journals or there are any number of uh, habits one can adopt in this regard. But that, that too appears as a perfectly rational, not only perfectly rational, but indeed necessary acknowledgement for our own most fundamental happiness and realization. I'd like that very much, yes. I mean, you started by pointing out that meaning uh, is something that can only exist between, um, and it, rather like the word. It's an encounter, isn't it? Um, it's not something, as you say, we just pluck out of the inside of us. It's an encounter with something, and it's often something that can't easily be articulated in words, interestingly, because, of course, uh, uh, articulation particular uh, rationalizing left hemisphere way of thinking about meaning is it something that should be um, encapsulable in sentences that could be written down and read by somebody else would immediately have the same meaning. But of course, there are many kinds of meaning. And it's the sort of meaning uh, that I think we all recognize that comes from the, the, the beauty of a day spent in nature, from listening to a beautiful piece of music from one's family and friends and so forth. And it's almost intrinsic to the nature of this kind of meaning that it simply can't possibly be put in words. Uh, it betrays it entirely to do so. But it is an encounter. And I think that uh, since what we're really talking about is, is something to do with what can we say is true, because it's the true things that give meaning and meaning is, has got to be a true meaning. It, truth is also an encounter. It's not something that one again draws out from inside one's intellect by a series of propositions that then either agree or cancel one another. The, the root of the word truth is the same as of troth, which of course means to be true to somebody, as we say, or of surfaces uh, that a carpenter makes to be true. So it is an encounter, and that therefore signifies that meaning and truth are both things that we, we can't find in some place, and we can't find just inside, but we can only find in the process of unfolding a life with other people and with their minds. That may sound odd coming from somebody who leads a fairly isolated life, but I feel enormously connected to people. And now, actually, I mean, in that an enormous number of people come and, come and visit me and I go and travel and talk to people and so forth. But actually, some of the connectedness doesn't require that kind of experience. It's something that if you have too much of that, it can actually drive out the deeper kind of connectedness. Anyway, um, yes. I think the idea that one is a recipient of whatever it is that's in the cosmos, and I mean, the least one can say is that there's something that isn't just in my mind. I mean, I know you can 
theoretically make a coherent argument that it's all in my mind, but then there'd be no point in my talking to you about it because you wouldn't exist and nor would any of the people listening to this and so forth. So I, I take it as read that there's something that is much greater and lives before us and after us. And it's that that we receive whatever it is we receive from. And we receive it more if we are grateful for it. And it becomes something different if we are grateful for it. It doesn't take long to create the habit of it. I must say, I find that in my encounter with, you know, something beautiful just outside the door, there is a sort of feeling which I can't help sort of describing as gratitude, a sort of sensible thank you. And my Sarekhart was, a, you know, one of the greatest of Western mystics said, Although I've never been able to find the source of it, so I suspect it may be a paraphrase, and said that if the only prayer you ever say is thank you, it will be enough. That's a beautiful phrase. In some sense, the terrible reductions of a certain kind of post-enlightenment rationality, for all of its wonders, the mechanistic and uh, computational uh, genius of the last centuries, uh, which none of us would wish to live without, we now find ourselves in a situation in which the view is widespread that that is all rationality ever can be. And that is all thinking can ever be, is this sort of uh, propositional, mechanistic, computational logic. But in fact, that's simply not true. I mean, this whole conversation we've had, I would say, is a rational conversation where we're thinking, we're trying to be adequate to the uh, complexity of reality in, in whatever you know, little way that we can here between Savannah and Sky across the internet uh, for an hour. But the, the fact of the matter is rationality in its full sense, in the sense in which you speak about the logos or of the nature of consciousness of a coming to of coming to see oneself in the relationship with what, with what is other, there's there's nothing about that that is it is remotely irrational or a betrayal of the carefulness and precision of thought. It's simply to acknowledge that reality cannot be reduced to inert propositions. If we were to take, for example, poetry, a great poem is precisely a great poem because in the activity of its being read, Things come to be in a tension and a movement that resists propositional reduction. You can't say simply, "Oh, well, the po you know," or the same with the work of literature. The 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 you know, Moby Dick is about this. Well, in some sense, you can you can give me that proposition, but that does nothing to open me up to the complexity of the this that the novel or the poem itself does. So I I suppose I I simply and I think this is uh, in keeping with very much what you're saying, I simply reject the idea that we have to keep to a narrow enlightenment view of, of reason. The whole tradition gives us a much richer account of what thinking can be. And it's a matter of, I would say, profound urgency that we recover the rich resources of what thinking can offer to us in order to more fully encounter reality as indeed it is. Yes, in an attempt to recover distinctions that are extant in other languages, certainly in Greek and Latin and German, I tend to make a distinction between rationality and reason. Rationality being a rather narrow form of concatenating propositions in order to come to a conclusion by following an algorithm, uh, some computational idea of reason from reason as being the best expression of 
a very balanced attention to life in which one's experiences, one's intuitions, and one's power of reasoning are brought together. And, of course, uh, that has existed long before the Enlightenment. But what is really very important in what you said is the is that we don't sort of build it up um, from... The, the, the problem, in a way, with the way we talk and think about everything now is that we start from whatever it is we think is the simplest element. Um, coming back to the idea that actually a relation may come before the things that are related because they only come to be what they are in the relationship. When you say that X is made of Y, and Y is much simpler than X, you've made a sort of comment about X, but you've also made a comment about Y, which is it has within it the capacity to become X. One of the things I always think about is that we set up the sense of ourselves in the cosmos as sort of tragic, lonely figures in a meaningless world thrown there and then producing these things we do, these monuments of beauty <laughs> and great pieces of music and so forth. But of course, it all means nothing. But unless I'm mistaken, they've got to be in the cosmos. Otherwise, where have they come from? Are you saying that somehow we can pluck out something outside the cosmos and bring it in? Or was, as it were, the capacity for the to be B minor mass, was it not always there in the cosmos? Uh, it's an unfolding that has happened of something that was already there. So all the time we're looking at, we come back to this idea of unfolding in a way, there's the richness and meaning of things is about the evocation of something that is there and allowing it to grow maximally. And we play a role in that. That is what is, that's where the human mind and the human soul and the human life uh, is so important because we actually can make a difference. Uh, numerically, it may look small, but that's the wrong way to think. That's again to adopt an external what I would call left hemisphere attitude about a summing up. Well, that's just one person against so many. But in fact, in this realm, it doesn't work that way. The size of something is not a measurable entity in, in that way. So we have a role. Max Scheler, favorite philosopher of mine of the 20th century, um, saw this. And it's one of his great insights is that we're not just passive recipients, because we talked about how we are recipients and we are grateful recipients, but we are also creators of whatever it is. And that is, in fact, what we do when we're here. In, in Hopkins' phrase, you know, that, 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 that's why we came. What I do is me, that, for that I came. So that, that, that is where I would see us as part of that nexus of um, bringing things into reason in the broader sense. And before leaving that topic, I'd just say that a very fruitful way, we've now got beyond, I think, except for some rather constrained strands in Anglo-American analytic philosophy. But I think that philosophy more and more is getting beyond that kind of image of reason as being something that is not tainted by emotion, intuition, the body, or experience, and builds on a far, far richer tradition, validated by modern neuropsychology, validated by 
ancient wisdom validated by our daily experience, which is that we're not just brains in a vat. We're not just thinking things. We are experiencing beings and that a lot of our thought only comes to mean what it does through interaction, through motion, through doing, through enacting. And it's through that that we are. So as it were, the doing is wrapped up with the being. It's not like we are who we are and then we decide to do certain things. It's not like we are who we are and we then get related to other things that already are. We're all bound up in one, eventually one, inextricable movement in which every part reflects part of the rest of the whole and every part is ultimately not in any way disconnectable from that whole. Uh, you know, I think of um, John Muir's thing about whenever we try to look at one thing on its own, we try to pull it out and we find that we're pulling out the whole of the universe with it. So he said it more elegantly than I've just said. <laughs> That's where my memory got me today. That is wonderfully said. Your thought is extraordinarily fecund and also very remarkably multi or interdisciplinary. I don't know what the phrase is that people like to use today. What were the early formative influences in your own life that enabled you to do the work that you do now intellectually? Gosh, um, oh, yes, quite a lot of things really, but I suppose one of the interesting things to me looking at it is that it it seems (laughs) to have a, a logic retrospectively, but it didn't necessarily reveal that at the time. I mean, what I've always been interested in is building bridges. No, I didn't foresee a career as an engineer, but what I mean is that I've always, I've always loved seeing connections. And at the school I attended, by the time we were 13, we'd fulfilled the requirements that one would need to get higher qualifications that would enable you to go to university. And so we were split into three uh, streams, which were effectively the classics, modern languages and history, and science. Uh, I chose science and uh, mathematics, but after a while I got disillusioned with scientific thinking, and I hung on to the mathematics, but decided I wanted to move to modern languages and history, and it was at that stage that I developed a passion for English literature. And then finally, I ended up moving to the third special stream. We were only supposed to have one, but I then moved uh, finally just before leaving. I'd been learning Latin and Greek from the age of about seven, but I went back to it because I wanted to be better at it so that I could read, you know, Plato in the original and all that sort of thing. So at the time I left school, I'd done a sort of gone out and done a tour back. I then got to Oxford and intended to study philosophy and theology. But uh, in those days, that wasn't an honours subject. And uh, they said, why don't you do philosophy, politics and economics? Well, I have no interest in politics and economics. I didn't then, and I still don't. So I didn't want to do that. And I didn't really want to do theology on its own. It was the philosophy of theology that interested me. So they said, well, look, you're good at English. Why don't you do that? So I did that, and I really loved it. I had a very, very good tutor who, again wasn't narrow in the way he talked about literature, but very much opened up one's attention to the liquidity of a writer, to the, 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 the individual quirkiness, the, the, 
you know, to use a technical term, the hexietas of that person. And that got me very interested in that as a philosophical idea. And so I went back to philosophy at that stage, puzzling over what was wrong with the way we approach literature. And in a nutshell, what I thought was that people had created something unique, embodied and implicit. Uh, and we came along and turned it into something generalized, disembodied and explicit in the seminar room and had thus uh, completely missed the point. And so I wanted to know more about embodiment, really. I got interested in the mind-body problem. I went to all the philosophy seminars on this subject, but I just thought they were all too disembodied and, and in their approach. And I thought, how can I get more embodied in my understanding of this connection? And the answer was to do medicine. I'd just really recently been reading Oliver Sacks' Awakenings, and uh, I thought, this is absolutely brilliant. Here's a man with a philosophical cast of mind who writes about individuals, but in ways that allow him to see large connections and an overall picture that's coherent. And I want to do something like that. And that led me into a long story of going back, becoming a medical student, you know, kind of qualified as a doctor, then doing some neurology and neurosurgery, and then some psychiatry. So I, I, all my life, I've been round the houses. I've never really lost sight of any of the other bits. I've always tried to see how they would reflect on whatever it was I was involved in at the time. I don't know if that's really what you <laughs> anticipated that I might say, but anyway. No, I, that, I, that's, I'm, that's, that's exactly what I was wondering about, Ian, because I'm I'm very interested in how... I'm interested in what forms of educational formation are most conducive to genuinely opening one up intellectually to the nature of the real, to thinking independently, and so on and so forth. You've written a very brilliant essay about the relation between the sciences and humanities, which takes the form of a kind of back and forth or a response to an essay by Steven Pinker. My question is, why do we need the humanities at all? And are they, so to speak, doing their job today? Yes, the, the very fact that we can ask that question, and I know you agree with me here, is a sign of the problem. Because, of course, it's from a very strange point of view that there would be something there that needed explaining. It was only if you assumed this reduced idea of what life is, that it's about this material fact put together with that material fact, and that knowledge comes from assembling these facts, and understanding is just having a lot of them at one's fingertips, um, that, that, that is a, a rather curious way to understand all the things that ultimately matter to us. I mean, I know it's very important that we should make good machines, and it's very important that we should indulge the really great spirit of science, which is very similar to that of the humanities, which is understanding what a human being is and understanding what this world is and understanding what the cosmos is like. Now, there is that strand in science and it has my awestruck devotion. And it's that kind of science that interests me but it's a much narrower kind of scientific mind that would say that everything can be limited to the sorts of things that we can uncover in the lab and that we're acquiring more of this and that one day we'll know it all. It's only not seeing the vastness of what it is one doesn't know that induces that kind of attitude. So the humanities are the core, really, of the response to what 
is a human being? What is the world and what is our relationship to it? I mean, probably if somebody visited from another planet and said, you know, what, what exactly are, what is a human life? What does this mean? You seem to be rather keen on it. What is it? Well, if I started talking to them about DNA and, and, and things of this kind and uh, various molecules and various acids and proteins and so forth, I wouldn't really be answering their question very well. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they didn't see quite what was so wonderful. I'd have to say, have a look at King Lear and come back after that. We'll have a conversation. Now, of course, being from another planet, they probably wouldn't understand that. But in a way, if you're really going to answer that question, the only way to answer it is in terms of the great myths, the great poems, the great deeds of history, the great movements in history, the pieces of music, the temples, the, you know, the religions, the things that we have built up as ways of understanding and enriching our understanding of what a human being is. So the, the, the very notion that it can all somehow be answered by science would be something that no good philosopher, I think, would ever have agreed to. Not that they would have been averse to science at all. They would see science as doing a very noble and important um, part of the intellectual puzzle. But it's all about hubris, really. I mean, once you start thinking you know it all, then you, you know you're missing most of the story. And, of course, it, it turns out that people who think they know it all or, or think that we can know it all uh, tend to be less intelligent than people who see the, the size of what it is that uh, tiny intellects are grappling with and are awestruck by that. So in that essay, I mean, I didn't in any way, I, I, I'm, you know, I would agree with Stephen Pinker about many things, um, and I didn't in any sense want to uh, disrespect him, but I thought that he had somehow misunderstood the value of humanities by disparaging it because it didn't come up with a new discovery in the way that science did. And, it, you know, it's very easy for the head of a university to say, well, look, my physics department came up with this discovery last week. You know, what, what exactly of the history department and the, the literature department and so on, what have they come up with? But this is to think of education um, as nothing to do with all that we were talking about, a relationship, drawing things out of people, which is what the word education means, that are in there, but rather putting facts into them. You can put facts into people and they will remain very stupid and rather dangerous. But if you're able to draw out of them their native ability to understand better what the panoply of a culture is and to transmit it, not in some fossilized way, but to transmit it exactly as a living culture that doesn't destroy or denigrate its past, but also doesn't get stuck in its past, but leads beautifully forward in an evolution towards something else great. That is what the humanities are there to do, to nourish a tradition that is a living source of life and to, and to help people feel connected to it, part of it, and excited by it. That was what my education at school particularly did. And I think I was very lucky, because in those days there was 
very little, you know, heavy-handed bureaucratic control and measurement. So that largely what happened was that people taught who were keen on teaching and good at it, and they were allowed to teach the things that fascinated them. And so I never remember anybody teaching me something about which they weren't enthused. And so what I felt was this constant spark. So, you know, it's like what Plato says in his seventh epistle about how philosophy is not about bashing out algorithms, <laughs> but it's like two friends who, after a long conversation and living together, a spark leaps from one of their souls to the other. Now, that is very unlike the way, I'm afraid, Plato often made Socrates appear, but that was Socrates's way of describing what um, philosophy should be, and it's what all education, in a way, should be. It's a stirring account and defense of the humanities, which, of course, I find myself extremely sympathetic with. At the same time, though, Ian, the humanities are in a very bad state, at least in many places they're in a very bad state, and not to, to point the finger at any particular institution, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they're preoccupied with certain uh, forms of uh, critique and resentment, with constructivist ideology, with certain uh, obsessions ideologically and otherwise. One of the most telling things I think of the last years amidst this the so-called meaning crisis is that virtually no one turned to the universities as the place out of which those answers would come, despite the fact that they are meant to be the, the keepers of the sacred flame. And so at the very moment at which we need them, the most vibrant humanistic inquiry on these questions of fundamental importance to human life, it's at that very moment that as a whole, the fields of the humanities appear to have quite profoundly lost their way. Would you agree? And, and, and why do you think that is so, if so? Yes, I think, I think they, they have, I'm afraid. And uh, when I've got this current book uh, off <laughs> my desk, uh, one of the things I want to write is a short book about the plight of the humanity. Um, broadly thinking, say, speaking, I think there are two main strands to it. One is, you know, my belief that at the moment we are, we're tending to think of everything in what I call a left hemispheric way, which is all about categories and theoretical structures that have not been adequately tested on the pulse of life, basically. So you get people who take a theory, um, and the left hemisphere is quite happy to judge something to be true, if, as long as it fits in with the theory that it happens to hold at the time. Whereas the right hemisphere says, look, hang on, that conclusion doesn't, doesn't square with anything in experience. So that reality testing of the right hemisphere has been sidelined and in its place has come forth a lot of theory building, some of it ba based on rather more sophisticated philosophies than there are often become in this process. For example, Marxism, which is not as reduced as the version of Marxism, neo-Marxism, would have liked to call it, that's espoused um, in some universities. But the whole sort of idea of social constructionism is, again, very one-sided and dogmatic. Okay, it gets us away from the idea that anything is sort of somehow ordained and intact and inert somewhere floating in, in the cosmos. Of course, nobody ever thought that. But it, 
introduces in its place this idea that we're imprisoned in the hall of mirrors of our own mind. We can't really break out of it. And of course, it's all about the coming together. It's all about relationship. It's all about our contact with something apart from ourselves and what happens when we come together with it. So I do think that, yes, the universities, first of all, I think they have become shameful and that is uh, hardly a strong enough word for the dereliction of duty that they have in the face of a kind of authoritarianism by young dogmatists who are intellectual, well, not intellectual at all, but intellectual thugs, um, and are trying to limit conversations, make certain topics undiscussable. Uh, and if you are interested in truth, then you really need to allow the path to take you where it goes and bring to bear, that's why we should be educated, to bring to bear our faculties of reason, intuition and emotion in a balanced way, not in some wild, aggressive way, which again, I'm afraid is typical of the reaction of the left hemisphere. It tends to get very angry and, and riled. So I think that's one strand. But I think the other is that the universities are self-destructing. I think what they, the, the humanities departments have seen the prestige and the money going to science, and they've tried to ape it. It reminds me terribly of the sort of old, bad old colonial days when people in the former British colonies felt that in order to be taken seriously, they had to dress um, like, like a Londoner. They couldn't dress in the way that they normally would. Well, I feel the same thing has happened in the colonization of the um, humanities, that they've become apologetic. They've wondered, how can I justify myself? I haven't got any data. But that's, of course, the same one. You know, <laughs> that's part of your strength, mate. That, you know, you don't operate in that way. It doesn't mean that you don't have value. It's just that you operate with precisely the most valuable things, which can't be answered to by a bunch of statistics, can't be assessed by running a statistical package. So I think that has happened. And in the process, they've made themselves less valuable than they would have been in the effort to show, which they're now, I believe, often obliged to as part of their kind of, oh, what's it called? I hate these things. There's some sort of term like... Uh, Oh, I don't know, some management term in which they have to basically justify their existence. They have to show how useful what they're doing is. Well, of course, the trouble is you don't know how useful it is until you follow it. And, then, and so if you start off knowing already what it is you're going to find, then you're not actually pursuing an intellectual quest. So that, of course, misrepresents what the humanities are doing. And the more the humanities fall in with it and go, oh, yes, yes, we must be more relevant and more useful, the more they're digging their own grave. Because in that form, the humanities are not worth saving. If that's what the humanities have come to, they've already been lost. So we might as well wind them up, especially if they go around caving into intimidation in the way they do and don't stand up for open public discussion. I wholly agree with you. And, and that, that very insight is, of course, what has led to the founding of Ralston College. You might say that the conviction that we urgently need intellectual communities where reality can be honestly confronted, where our, the argument can be followed where it leads, where we can engage yeah. in reflection on our own natures and our deepest and highest possibilities, those intellectual communities are surely 
at the foundation of flourishing human life at all. I wholly agree with that. And I think that it's deeply patronizing that we don't honor these things. We don't somehow trust young people. We don't honor their intelligence. Exactly. That is such an important point, Ian. Thank you. Continue with I that. Feel that very, I, feel, well, I, I feel that very strongly. And I've seen in my lifetime the same mistake made several times over. It first became obvious to do with religious services. Um, I, I, as I say, I'm not a paid-up member of anything, and I don't now go to church services, largely because they're so diabolically awful. Um, uh, and what happened in <laughs> my, my, my lifetime was that they went from being actually very beautiful occasions which helped to bring one to a sense of something beyond this realm that we need to honor and to be grateful to and to make contact with. They went from that sort of sense of something transcendent to something utterly pedestrian and that really makes one feel this is a waste of time. It substitutes a kind of, you know, cod philosophy. It doesn't trust, in other words, the liturgy, the ancient words, the music to speak for themselves. And the idea was this would bring lots of people into the church. All it did was alienate those who used to like it, like myself. And we've seen congregations, certainly in this country, dwindle. Then I saw it happening as the media started thinking, oh, uh, classical music, oh dear, it's too demanding. So there was a station here called Radio 3, which actually had a lot of marvellous things on it. It had debates with philosophers. It played not just one slow movement from a very well-known Chopin piano concerto, but actually played the whole of pieces of music and engaged in intellectual dialogue about it. It was something that the BBC was famed for and honoured for and They've thrown it away because, oh dear, people won't get it. So now it's full of all kinds of irritating, patronizing trivia that nobody who really would have been the audience for Radio 3. Now I've stopped listening to Radio 3. Radio 4, which was our flagship political programs, um, famed for their um, debate have been taken over by the Wokarati um, and have become so boringly dogmatic and as though every time you switch on, you've got to, rather like in a Maoist culture, you've got to genuflect to the doctrines of the, you know, those of the, the people running the program. And they found that, funnily enough, their audiences have dropped off. Now, it's not that people are too stupid for what they're doing, so they ought to drop it further. It's that they're much brighter than the media think they are, and they should up their game. And then, my goodness, they'd find lots of bright young people would say, gosh, did you hear what was on the radio last night? That's as good as anything I'm getting in the university. You know, that's a program I need to listen to every week. We need to be pushing the other way. We need to be stretching people. We need to be, you know, exciting them with the joy of discovering things with intellectual quest. And instead, we're offering them some terrible, watered-down trivia. And, you know, it grieves me. I'm glad I'm reaching the end of my life, but I would like there to be something there in the end that people can pick up and run with. And I'm hoping that Rawson College will prove to be a leading light in that. 
Well, I hope we will be worthy of your good wishes, Ian. Your stirring account just now of the degradation of religious liturgy, which you then see mirrored in the arts and in science, we've spoken of earlier, in the humanities, of community, of nature, all of this in one sense very depressing, but on the other hand, your powerful defense of the capacity in young people themselves, in the human soul, in the individual, to respond to a richer account of things seems at the same time to be a deeply optimistic note perhaps for us to end on, because it might be to say that we are now ripe for a recovery of forms of life and intellect that are adequate to the depth and complexity of life itself in a way that even in recent decades we could not have imagined. That's very much my hope, and your work is, for me, a very illuminating means of seeing our way forward. I'm deeply grateful to you for that and for the chance to have spoken with you again today. Oh, thank you very much, Stephen. It's really been my pleasure. And I wish Rawson College the very, very best, and I hope that you will become a model for many other places that will spring up. And then the tired old institutions will need to look to their laurels. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. My guest today was the philosopher, psychiatrist, and literary scholar, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. If you like, You can subscribe to this podcast on all the usual podcast apps, or if you'd like, you can support our work to renew, reform, and reimagine higher education at www.ralston.ac. Upcoming episodes include interviews with the Nobel laureate in economics, Vernon Smith, the Scottish sculptor, Sandy Stoddart, and the late mathematician polymath, Freeman Dyson. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.